All right, everybody. Uh, last week, we took an extended amount of time to specifically address uh, how our church is being led of God to follow Jesus in this very sort of weird time that we're in. Even right now, speaking into a, a video camera instead of the real people makes things a little uh, awkward, but we want to encourage everyone to stay as focused as they can, and in the spirit of just keeping on with our mission and vision, this morning we're going to continue studying through the book of 1 Peter. Jonathan Gower is going to be preaching. We had him lined up to preach last week, but due to the situation, I wanted to just share a word from God. So Jonathan will be preaching this morning from, and uh, the weed eater goes on outside right here, hopefully that won't interfere, but Jonathan Gower will be speaking today from 1 Peter, and we're thankful for that. One of the key things about our church is that we want to be making disciples who make disciples, but also be making disciple-making leaders who are discipling other people. Our goal is to provide opportunities for people to lead and grow. We believe that the church shouldn't just have a couple leaders who do ministry for everyone, but that we equip people for the work of the ministry, and that means also equipping people to grow in leading the Sunday gatherings and preaching and teaching God's Word. So we're thankful to have Jonathan speak with us this morning, and for our time of sending, I'll give us some more words of encouragement and equipment. So come on, Jonathan Allen, we hear God's Word. All right, guys, good morning. Uh, this is different for me, looking at a camera, like Rusty was saying. Um, are, we, are we good? We're good? Um, sorry, we're, just, uh, we're new to this, so we're still working out the bugs and technical issues, but hopefully everything's working on y'all's end with the stream. Uh, Rusty mentioned if, if y'all are having trouble seeing anything, just send him a text message or message in the comments and let us know if anything cuts out. Uh, but we'll get started. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 4 through 17. Let's hear from God's word. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders have rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, 
or to governors sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray this morning. Dear God, we're just so thankful that uh, despite having to be distant and physical uh, and, and being here together as we normally would, that, that you provide a way that we can be united over uh, the internet um, and most of all be united over your word that rings true and is in our all of our homes. Uh, God, help us this morning as we just continue to look at 1 Peter and see uh, the call that you have to first remind us of the identity we have in you and that that identity calls us to do hard things. But that identity also gives us the strength and endurance to do those hard things. So help us this morning, help us in this season that we're in as we see all over the world people are worried, uh, people are in fear, are losing their jobs, they're uh, questioning what they will do for daily bread the next day, they're worried about the illness that's coming around. Um, help us to see you are a God that's not overwhelmed by all this, that you can hear all of our prayers, that you offer answers to our prayers as well. Well, get uh, started just thinking of it. A couple weeks ago, I actually got to go visit some family back in Mexico, and uh, we flew from Atlanta into San Diego, and, and uh, a, a lot of you all know that I actually got to live in San Diego for a couple years, and uh, going back there, getting to see old friends was really good, um, but also seeing some of the areas where I live, uh, seeing the, the grocery stores and the streets and all these things brought up good memories, but also some sad memories. Uh, my time there... Uh, one of the struggles that I had pretty much almost the whole time that I was there was to have some sort of financial security. Part of that came from me being young and making unwise decisions, but also a lot of it came from the fact that uh, Southern California is an expensive place to live, and uh, it is hard to find a job that you can work at that will uh, pay for the cost of living there. Um, and so I remember just going from job to job, uh, just trying to work as hard as I can and try to find a way to make as much money, um, not so I could have a bunch, but just so that I could have money to live. Um, one case in particular just brought back these memories of the anxiety I felt during the season and, and, um, and the hardship of it. Um, I had previously been working at Chick-fil-A, um, and the, the boss I had, he had decided to sell his franchise and to, uh, just to no longer be in the restaurant business. Um, a couple months later, he, he emailed me, asking me to meet with him, and we met, and he, he told me that he had uh, he decided to open up a chain of massage uh, parlors, I guess you say, kind of like a massage envy, um, and so he wanted me to come be his manager for the first one he was opening, and he was offering me more money than I was making at the time, he was offering me uh, the chance to have a more advanced career. Um, and so I, I thought about it for a few days, and I, I decided, yeah, this seems like a good opportunity. This guy hired me for Chick-fil-A, and he was good to me while I was there. And 
So, you know, following him seemed like a good idea. Um, but uh, quickly after being hired and leaving Chick-fil-A, I found out that he had uh, he had hired multiple managers, about three of us, to do the same job. And it came from his idea of, like, just really aggressively growing his business quickly. Um, and so uh, he, his idea was, I'm going to have three, four managers all trained. And as soon as I open these stores back to back to back, I'm going to have a well-trained manager take over, and it's going to help grow the business even more, which ideally sounds good in practice. Um, however, the, uh, the the store actually got delayed in opening. So, so I left my job at Chick-fil-A and did about a month of training, and we were ready to open the store, and then we find out that it's going to be two or three more months. Uh, well, there wasn't that much work to do before business actually opened, um, and so that became a struggle of finding enough work to do each day to make sure I could justify getting paid. Um, and then once the store did open, it didn't open with the reception that the, the owner thought was going to happen. It didn't do well. Um, and so um, he, he first came to me and said, hey, the salary position that I, I, I had offered you, I, I'm not going to be able to pay you, um, but I can offer you a full-time uh, hourly wage. So it was last month. But it was still, I really didn't have many other options, and, and I, I felt confident that maybe he could make this work. So I, I stayed and stayed on full time, but for less money. And then as the store did not do well, um, he came to me and said, hey, we, we can't afford for you to stay full time. You have to move to part time, um, which, which really was crushing because I didn't really have a lot of other opportunities available to me. And uh, so what I, what I ended up doing is actually making less money um, while actually spending more um, because I was actually driving about three times the distance that, uh, that my commute to Chick-fil-A was. And so um, I remember just feeling so hurt, um, feeling so wronged by this. Um, I would go home and I remember calling my family and holding back tears as I, as I tried to you know, explain that I'm, I'm working it out, I'm going to figure it out, try to make things sound like I'm going to be okay. And, and really I was, I was scared every day. not going to be okay. Um, I remember staying up late at night Googling what legal options I could possibly take to try to force him to honor his promise that he had given me um, and, and get the wage that I, I expected when I left my previous job. And thankfully, uh, God did bring me out of that season and he, he did provide a better job for me, a job that actually allowed me to move from California to Tennessee um, and be a part of Matthew's table. People for God's faithfulness to that, but um, the the hurt I felt towards my boss. Um, it the the going back to San Diego and visiting the streets where I remember this is where my car broke down multiple times, and this is the grocery store. I remember sitting in the parking lot crying because I'm like, I probably can't afford to go get any groceries today. Um, and uh, you know, just all the different mistakes I made, just trying to desperately you know survive. Um, and and seeing how God was good was through it all was good for me, but uh, it did also just remind me of all that, that hurt of the unfairness I felt. And if we, if we were all here present today, we could probably go around the room and we could easily, without having to come up with some kind of random hypothetical, we could come up with a situation that we've experienced or someone we love has where we've been treated unfairly, where someone who had authority over us, whether it's a boss or a family member or, or our government or, or, or whatever, that, that that we've been mistreated um, and had uh, 
bosses take credit for our work or um, to just just feel the unfairness and injustice of, of unjust authority. And the real solution to this is for us to say, well, go be your own boss. Uh, go make your own choices, be self-governing, have full autonomy. And by doing this, you will find your true identity. You'll find what really makes you you, and you'll also find freedom. But Peter comes in this letter to us today, and he's letting us know and reminding us of a better identity that can be found. An identity that's not found in our self-autonomy, but is found in the Savior who sacrificed his own autonomy in order to save us. So we'll start, we're going to jump around the text today, but we'll be in the first Peter 2, 4 through 17. Um, the first is going to look at 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14, where it says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme, or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Now, when we we hear or talk about the topic of submission, um, there's a lot of responses that that come up in us. A lot of people are very passionate about this in different ways. Um, there's a majority of us that might have either have been hurt or have others who have been hurt by authority. And so uh, whether that's in the church or in the world or in your work, um, and so when you hear this, you're ready to, to jump up and, and, and like rebut anything that's said against you. Uh, you also might be hearing our, the weed eater outside, so uh, I'll try not to be distracted by that, but hopefully y'all can hear okay. Um, like, so you get this idea that like, there's this group that's like, they hear submission and they're ready to attack this. They don't, they don't like it, um, and, and it, it because uh, people have been mistreated, because uh, they have been uh, taken advantage of, um, or, or uh, authorities that have you know, taken on the role of more of like a dictatorship that, that just forces things on them, they, they're ready to rebel against it. Um, and then you have another group who hears this and they're like, I've seen what this group does, they're, they're ready to attack, and I really don't like conflict, so we're just going to completely ignore this. And, you know, we really, this, uh, this idea that like, either we have this emotional response wanting to attack the idea of submission or we want to completely avoid it, Either way, we, we all have this natural aversion to submission. Um, we, don't, we don't like it. We don't like it. Essentially, submission is letting someone else decide what is best for us. And, and that, just even describing it in that way, we just go, yeah, that doesn't sound right. Um, and, and this is something that's natural. We don't have to be taught this. If you think about, it doesn't take kids very long for them to ask their parents, well, you know, the parent says, Go clean your room, or go to bed, or whatever else, and 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 kids very early on are going to say why. They demand a response. You have to justify yourself why I should submit to the authority or in your your command of me, and and you know parents we have you know I'm not there, but you know the best answer that that you can give, which is because I said so. Um, but but naturally there's just something that we we just don't like the idea of having to give that that power over our lives to someone else. Um, this is also reinforced in our culture, especially in our Western society. Um, there's there's two main groups that you might uh, you might be familiar with or not of categories, but one of them would be you know strong group uh, sorry uh, yeah strong group culture and weak group culture. Strong group culture would be 
Good, Rusty, just let me know that we can't hear the Ouija here. So, uh, that's good. Um, so, the, uh, the stronger culture would be uh, not really as common here in the U.S., but it, but it would be the culture that says, like, we make decisions as a group for the group. Um, and so the idea that you uh, you don't choose your career, you don't choose um, who, maybe even who you're going to marry, you, you just don't, don't make life decisions in of yourself. You The group makes that together, and it's for the betterment of the group. Um, and, and there are some positives to that. You do get, a, you know, some sense of, of strength of community that's built with that. Um, and the opposite would be the weak group culture, uh, which is, is going to say, it's not, not to doubt this, that side by saying it's weak, but literally weak as in, like, we don't put the importance on the group. Our decisions, our life decisions are made for the interests of our own dreams and our own aspirations. And there's, there's good and bad to both. Um, and, and the bad side of like strong group cultures would be that we basically say this is our group and, and that's it. We don't allow the outsider to come in and we don't make decisions that benefit the outsider. We make decisions that benefit our group. And, and there, you could, there could be another sermon for that another day, but Jesus does come to rebuke that. And he actually, you see him elevate his disciples and followers to the level of family. And that was very countercultural to the day. Um, but to look at our culture, um, where we lean towards the weak group culture, we see that uh, making all the decisions for ourselves in terms of like what what benefits us is the most important. Um, there's definitely a downside to that. Um, we see the idea of that is reinforced in our movies and in our TV shows. Um, most of the time, the heroes are ones who rebel against their family, their government, or their society in order to try to find their true self, experience what their true dreams are. Um, you can look at a good example would be Disney movies. Um, often the hero uh, will make a decision that disobeys their family, their, the king, or the whatever else, the authority that's over them. Um, and it's because they want they don't agree with it. They don't feel like they're, they're going to be their true self if they have to submit to that. And then the consequences of that is the town is now overrun by the evil villain, or a spell falls across the town, um, or some other tragedy happens, and the hero has to overcome that. And but but actually, in the end of the movie, most of the time, the the middle consequences, the suffering of the town, or or whatever, the destruction that happened from the evil villain, um, most of the time we completely ignore that because in the end, the hero overcame the villain and did it through the method of seeking their own dreams and being their true self. And we completely ignore the fact that if they had disobeyed in the first place, this destruction would not have happened. Now, I'm not saying don't go watch Disney movies or anything. Um, I actually would encourage us to do that and talk with our families and, and, and just analyze ourselves of what is actually being taught to us through these movies. Um, but we see examples, we see unfair bosses who take credit for your work and don't honor what, what, uh, what they promised you um, and exploit you. Um, we see there's, there's real examples of abusive family members who demand that you do things for them and their own pleasure um, to make them happy or, or make them proud of you as a child. Um, and, and then we definitely see examples of corrupt governments. Um, Real examples, it would not be hard in the U.S. or around the world to find examples where governments have over have abused their authority. 
Um, one example that just comes to mind and even thinking about the idea of comparing what we watch in movies, me and my wife recently were watching a movie that uh, uh, was about the security guard who found the bomb at the Atlanta Olympics in 96. And uh, like Rusty, I won't, uh, I won't necessarily recommend or sponsor a movie. You can go watch it at your own discretion. Um, but, uh, and also it is a movie, so I'm sure there's some level of some things are being dramatized, so it's, it's more interesting. So I don't want to speak to say that this is exactly how it happened. But at least in the movie, the security guard is, uh, after the event of the bomb, uh, he's targeted by the government, the FBI, and they regularly are abusing their power in order to try to get a quick conviction from him. Um, and so they do tricks, like they trick him into thinking he's helping them. So he desperately wants to be law enforcement, so he's very happy to help. Next, he's doing a training video where really they're recording an interrogation. Uh, they trick him by trying to get him to sign away his rights to an attorney. Um, and repeatedly throughout the movie, they're constantly leaning into a, the, the, their, their power and authority in order to, to push this narrative. They get him to try to record things that, so they have an audio of him saying stuff that he never actually really said. Um, and so when you're watching this, you're like, oh, man, like, this breeds a lot of distrust in, in the government. Um, and rightly so in some ways, because we, we do have, in, in the U.S. and around the world, governments do potentially uh, struggle with, with abusing their power in order to make it convenient, make their citizens more like uh, willing to just submit, um, or in order to show to, if their authority is challenged, like when a bombing happens, it seems like the, the people have distrust on if the government can't protect them. And so they're wanting to get a conviction really quickly so that they can show, hey, we do have this under control. So we look at all these examples, and really we get to this we get to this one conclusion that humans make really bad masters. And like I said, that can be applied to bosses, to family members, to corrupt governments, to any smaller authority that's in your life. Eventually, they're going to fail you in some way and prove to be a bad master. And the world's solution to the unjust authorities um, who would try to stop your own self-governing and limit your autonomy is to rebel, to kick and to scream, to riot, to quit your job, to quit whatever is, is trying to limit you, to you can burn the job down after you leave, you can do whatever it takes as long as you're doing it in the pursuit of your own autonomy and freedom and finding your true self, you are justified. Now, we actually do care about justice. There's a reason why when we experience this, this unfairness, when we feel like an, the authority is being oppressive to us, why we want justice. And, and there's two main reasons. <laughs> Sorry, I'm not sick. I just have a little bit of a dry throat. So, uh, but uh, either way, you shouldn't catch the coronavirus through the webcam. Um, but uh, so the first reason would be that uh, because we are made in the image of God, now, we could talk for hours about the importance of being made in the image of God. Uh, but in this point, we're talking about the fact that because God cares about justice, he not only cares about justice, but he actually defines what justice is. Because we are in his image, we share his characteristics. And so we care about justice. The other reason why we, why we care about justice is because we see the hurt that it causes us. 
Uh, we see the hurt that it causes others when, when authorities are unjust. And we see that brokenness and we say, this needs to be made right. Uh, something, something just naturally inside of us says, says, this has to be set right. So we look in the Bible for our answer of how this is made right. And we see what justice looks like, what God determining what is right and wrong, and him enacting justice on that looks like. Um, a good example would be Hosea chapter 1, 6 through 9. So the story of Hosea is a real-life example where God uses real people to try to say, or try to show the example of how Israel has treated their relationship with him. So God actually calls Hosea to take a wife uh, who is going to, who's a prostitute. And uh, he actually uses that to refer to the wife as Israel. Um, and he later on in the Bible, we see God actually references Israel as a whore, as a prostitute. And, and actually, he even says it's worse because uh, a prostitute does what they do for money. And he says, Israel, you, you get yourself away for free. Um, so Hosea takes Gomer as his wife, who's a prostitute, and, and she's unfaithful to him. Um, she has children outside of their marriage. Um, and God actually declares what these children are going to be named. Um, and so for one of them, he, he says, name her no mercy, for I will have no mercy on Israel. So they name the child no mercy, mercy is weaned, and then they have another child. And he says, name this one not my people. For Israel is not my people, and I am not their God. So they do it. And, and just getting this glimpse of how serious judgment is and how God deals with judgment, um, how when he looks at the sin of, of his people, the sin of the world, he declares, I'm not going to have mercy. He declares that you are not my people. And we want to focus on wanting justice and wanting that judgment to happen on the people who have wronged, who have wronged us. But we forget that we also have incurred judgment. We also have sin, and our sin, our, our sin causes us to be, be declared not his people and to not have mercy. Here's the beautiful part of this whole text. is that Jesus saw a people who were not his people, who were not deserving of mercy, and who were dead. And he took our place. He paid our debt. He stepped in and took the, the payment of our debt, died on the cross for our sins, and then showed his power to overcome that even and rose from the dead, conquering death. He does that to show us that not only has he rescued us by paying for the debt of our sin, but he's actually brought us from death back to life. This is made so clear and in such a beautiful way in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10. Remember the context that we see God's judgment of sin in Hosea. You are not my people, and I do not give you mercy. And in 1 Peter 2, he reminds us that. He says, we were once no mercy, but now we have received mercy. He says, we were once not my people, but now we are his people. And just rest in that for a second, guys, that, that God would, would take the judgment that we deserve 
and reverse that. To look at us and say, you are my people. We see the two identities that we're given, or multiple identities, but we see two of them here um, in, uh, in, two, in chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. Um, first, he calls us a holy nation and a people for his own possession. Meaning that this identity that he's given us is for him to be glorified, for him to love us, but also it's eternal. No longer do we have to have this doubt of will we one day again not receive mercy and no longer be called his people. We are his people for him to possess, to keep forever. And secondly, he gives us an identity that actually gives us a job. He calls us a chosen race and a royal priesthood. Now this goes into what Rusty's been talking to us for months about, about how there's nothing uniquely special about Rusty's position. Um, not that you're not special, Rusty, but that, uh, but I keep saying that in, in regards to the mission of seeing the gospel made known in Cleveland, there's not one person who's been, who's been designed by God to go do that only, and then we're just supposed to pay that person. We've all been called to see the gospel go forth in our city, and so that's why he calls us. He calls us that royal priesthood. Um, we all have that identity. Looking more to the fact that we are now in possession of God, the Bible tells us that we are going to be slaves to something. See, we can either believe the lie that self-autonomy and, and governing of ourselves will give us true freedom and let us have our own identity. But that, that's just a lie. We, we say, okay, well, I'll go be my own boss. Therefore, I don't have to face injustice boss, bosses. Um, but then we become a slave, not to a, another boss, but to the worry of will we make enough money? Will we be a successful boss? Or what will happen if a tornado comes and swallows up our business and then we lose everything? Uh, or if nothing else, you still are a, uh, a business that has to submit to the government and pay your taxes. And so there's always going to be another master. So we can choose to believe a lie that somehow we've, we've freed ourselves from this. But again, that's just us telling us something. It's not, it's not actually true. Or we can believe that we now get to serve the one and only good master all the universe. And that's the identity he's giving us, is that not only are we brought into his family, do we get all the benefits of being protected and loved by him, but he's given us work to go do. Now, when we look at this identity, we look at being a royal priesthood, called out to go and do the mission of God, this doesn't necessarily just automatically change. And that's really the context we see all throughout First Peter, is that he keeps reminding us of the identity you have, and then I'm going to say, because of this identity, go out and do something that's hard. And when it gets hard, look back to the identity you have. And he just continually reminds us that chapter after chapter going through the book. And so when we come to the idea of submission, and submitting to lesser authorities, to unjust authorities, to authorities that would oppress us, it doesn't automatically, because we're saved, we say, okay, this is easy. I will do this, and I'll be happy about it. We're not going to all of a sudden just like submission. That's why in 1 Peter 2, he calls us to submit for the Lord's sake. You see, if we just if we were submitting to these unjust authorities because God was saying, well, I'm just going to teach you and make you a better person um, by doing this, 
then, then that would just be for our sake. Or if we were saying, I'm willing to make those good ma those bad masters, the people who are oppressing you, by you submitting to them, they're actually going to be good masters in the future. That would be for their sake. But we do it for the Lord's sake. And so what that means, so first off, it's great when God does use our submission to them and living out the idea that he has to change us and to change others. That is great. But what it's saying here is that if that doesn't happen here on earth, if we don't see the, the change of, of the, the government or the police or our bosses, if we don't see that change here, it doesn't mean that it's for waste because we're doing this to honor and love our God and live out the identity he's given us. You see, how we submit to the authorities that God has placed in our lives is a direct reflection of how we relate to God. And people will see that. So Peter's actually writing to uh, people who previously in their lives, uh, they would go to the parties of the city, to the orgies where drunkenness happened, where sacrifice to false gods happened. Um, and, and people will see that now these Christians don't come to these parties, don't come to these things anymore. And they view Christians as, okay, they're probably trying to rebel and overthrow our government. And so they start spreading these evil lies about this is the, the Christians are against us. They're seeking to overthrow our civilization. And Peter's actually saying, don't just be known for not going to the party. Don't just be known for what you don't do because you're seeking to be holy. But be known for what you do do, seeking to be holy. And so what that looks like is, is how foolish does it look like when people say they're seek these Christians are seeking to overthrow our society because they're not at the party. And when you go look and see what the Christians are doing when they're not at the parties, they're not secretly hiding in a house, making plans on this big whiteboard of how, how they can you know, do a 10-step process to overthrow the city. Instead, they're actually making food for their neighbors. Um, they're actually you know, caring for the sick and the, and the people who don't have people to take care of them. And that's what Peter's pointing out, is to point out there, have the, the, the authorities we realize for the foolishness of the evil lies that they're spreading by doing good, by loving people. And in that, you love God and you honor the identity he's given you. First Peter 2, 11-17 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. And we have a couple examples, and we could definitely find more if we had more time today. But looking in Acts 4, 18 through 20, Peter and John are, are preaching in, in the city. It says, so that the city, they're talking about the city officials. They, so they called them, they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of what we have seen, or sorry, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, as Christians, sometimes we will wrongly use this verse and others to be a, a scape card to having to submit to the authorities around us. We can say, look, our authority is God, therefore you are not God, so I do not have to submit. And this verse is not really talking about that at all. Um, it's actually not saying that you don't because you submit to God, you do not have to submit to these other authorities. It's not saying that 
if you feel like this, what they are asking you to do is wrong, or that uh, if you don't like it, or you don't feel like it's the best way that you don't have to submit, what it's saying is that if the lesser authority is calling you to do something that would be sin, that would cause you to sin, then you need to submit to God, not them. So when Peter and John are called by their city officials saying, do not preach Jesus, they know that Jesus has already declared to them to go out to all the world proclaiming the gospel. And therefore, for them to deny that, that would be sin. So they're going to continue to preach. What we see later is in the next chapter, the city official says, well, if you're going to preach, we're going to whip you. We're going to beat you. And Peter and John look at the scriptures and they say, well, yes, it would be sin for us to deny Jesus and not proclaim the gospel of him. But it's, it's not sin for us to be whipped. It's not sin for us to submit to obedience. So they do, and they are. You see, that's the difference, is we can submit to the lesser authority when they have a, a sinful judgment upon us, when they want us to do something that would cause us harm. But we don't submit when they cause us to, they, they are telling us to directly disobey God. Another example of that would be when we look at the story of Joseph. So there's a lot to the story of Joseph, but a quick summary would be that Joseph uh, was favored by his father. And he one day is going to the fields to see his brothers. And his brothers see him, and they're envious of him and the favor his father gives him. So they take him and they throw him in the pit. And they stand above the pit talking about how they're going to murder him. Then they decide not to murder him, but to sell him into slavery. And by selling him to slavery, he was going to go basically uh, live a hard life away from everyone he's known, away from the father who has loved him and favored him until he died. So Joseph sold him to slavery. He does well as a slave and is elevated in his position, but then is wrongfully accused and thrown in prison. Um, then he meets people in prison and one person promises to help him get out once he gets out and then that person does not um, and so Joseph waits in prison longer and eventually Joseph is let out of prison and God uses him to help get the Israelites um, and to uh, he actually elevates him to the second most powerful person in the land and Joseph eventually gets to help his brother Brothers come in from a famine, they need food, and he's actually able to give them food. And, and more plays out, but eventually Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, letting them know, I'm the one you threw in the pit thinking you would murder. I'm the one you sold into slavery, and life's been hard. And when he confronts his brothers, he doesn't say, but it's all good, it's okay. He says, what you did was evil. What you meant, he actually says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And, and what he's saying is he's not just letting his brothers off. He, he's saying that, look, what you did was evil, and God actually might punish you for it. But as far as him seeking revenge, meaning to sell his brothers into slavery or kill his brothers because they wanted to kill him, Joseph knows that he doesn't have to seek revenge, and that it would be sinful for him to seek revenge. So he can submit to going to jail, to being a slave, to having to work away from his family because he knows that, that his life is in God's hands. Our last example we have is just looking at Jesus' trial. So Jesus gets taken in the middle of the night to an unfair and unjust trial where uh, false witnesses come to him or come to the trial 
and lie about him, he remains silent. He submits to them taking him, even though he had the power to destroy them. He submits to hearing false testimony be brought up against him. He submits without, without contesting their lies and them shouting at him. But when they actually ask him, are you the Christ? When they actually ask him to answer something that if he denies, it would be a lie, he answers them. And, and this enrages the crowd so much that they, they do a, an unjust sentence on him and then seek to have him murdered. And Jesus submits to that as well. You see, Jesus is the one man in all of the universe, of all of history, that had self-autonomy, that had the right to choose exactly what he wanted to do, to seek exactly what his will would be. And repeatedly throughout Scripture, we see Jesus mention how he doesn't do his will. He does the will of the Father. Jesus gave up his own autonomy. He gave up everything that he had the right to do. You know, the creator of all things, the one that holds all things together, allowed his creation to impose an unjust sentence on him. And he did it for us. He did it so that he could step into the place where we couldn't and take the punishment for us. So in concluding today, I just want to look at a couple things. And Rusty's going to continue next week and following up because this is such a big topic and there's a lot more to it. But... Uh, and just looking at a couple of things. So first off, we have a new and better identity than what the world can offer us. And in that identity, we're called not only to rest in knowing that we are possessed by God for all eternity, and we don't have to worry about that going away, but we also have a job, a job that calls us to do hard things. And in that submission, as loving Christ, loving God for his sake, we not only want to be known, for what we abstain from and what we choose not to do um, because we want to seek holiness, but also for loving our neighbor, for, for doing things that actually do increase the identity that we have in him. And then just looking at especially the time that we're in, there's a lot of people are scared right now. Uh, a lot of people are worried. They've lost their job or they think they will. They don't know what next tomorrow is going to hold. They don't know if the government's going to do the right thing for them. Um, they don't know if the, the world's just going to keep getting crazier and crazier. We want to first be people who can, with confidence, say our God is in control. Our God has made us his people, and therefore he cares for us. And he's not going to abandon us. And then we want to remember our identity as his work, that we want to be loving our neighbors in every way we can, whether that's praying with them, Showing them uh, the assuredness that we have through reading scripture with them or, or just having them over for a meal one at a time maybe to, to uh, not increase your side, you know, risk of, uh, of spreading any disease. Um, or just in distance saying, hey, um, you know, you're my neighbor. Maybe I can leave you some food on the, on, on the porch and I'll, you can sanitize it later. Uh, or, or just keep thinking of creative ways that we can uh, be on mission to our neighbors in this time of need. Let's be the example of what love looks like to the authorities that God has placed over us and to our neighbors. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much for just this reminder of how you have saved us, how you have made us your people and given us the calling of being a royal priesthood this morning. And although it's hard, although we never 
feels like it gets any easier when we see injustice, when we see unfairness brought against us. And we, we naturally want to just seek the, the justice and correction of it. Thank you that you reminded us that, um, that you don't let any sin go unpunished. And thankfully, you paid the debt of our sin. Help us to have that attitude as we, as we face the struggles of the fall, this, this week, next week, the following month. Um, and, and not knowing what the next steps will be as far as this virus and quarantine and loved ones uh, falling ill. Let us just rest in knowing that you are in control, you love us, and you will not abandon us. And also protect us from evil. We respond to God's word this morning. I think we're reminded of the fact that Although we are so thankful for the opportunities with our technology to be able to spend this time, that we really miss being together. So thankful to hear that word, God's word from Jonathan, to be able to sit here. But if you weren't here, I, I pray that right now would give you an opportunity to, to do your best to respond in as personal a way as you can, realizing that the presence of Jesus is with you. Just as, just as real as any other circumstance. Because we're not together, though, we, we can't gather around the table to break the bread, to taste the cup, to be reminded in person of the unity that we have in Christ and the participation that his special presence, presence around the table brings us. But we do long for that time and we do also want to create a space right now where we can respond and reflect, being reminded of his finished work for us and also being reminded of this unity that he's called us to. So if you would, just reflect with me now as if we were together. Am I following Jesus as Lord in my life? Am I trusting him to be only who he can be? Is there some follower of Jesus, whether a part of this church or not, that you are living in an unreconciled relationship with? How might in this season you have more of an opportunity to connect with them and to seek restoration? What idols in your life, maybe some related to our subject today, maybe uh, control has a grip on your heart, so you find it very hard to yourself to the Lord or to those whom he might put in your life to give direction who might be authority maybe it's approval maybe you just do whatever you're told because you want that affirmation that people give you even at the stake of your dishonoring of God or dishonoring him who called you and created you to be maybe it's comfort and you just go with the flow maybe it's Maybe your whole life's goal is to be the one in authority so that you can tell other people what to do. And you think that will be what gives you meaning in your life. Which of these idols might you need to bring to Jesus right now and trust your heart to him and his leading? Let's pray. What wounds are brought up in you of our word today? When in your life have you been hurt Maybe this very topic 
make you mad. Because deep down it makes you afraid. Reminds you of church. What do you need to bring to Jesus tonight? What do you need? Confess your sins. And lastly, what lies? How does the enemy whisper, have God really said in your ear if you do these things? He can't really take, take care of you if you obey this word. You know you're just going to set yourself up. It's a great, great harm. But no one else will be there to care for you. What are those lies that betray the identity you are not alone. God is with you. You have an identity. Well, it's not you. Let's take a moment now and just reflect on these things, asking God's Spirit to apply the Word of God.